But if you're joining with us for the first time, we are, uh, and this might sound a little bit ironic as a church, but we're focusing on the Bible, uh, but in a, in a slightly more uh, intentional way in the sense that we're not just trying to preach one message out of one section or one topic. We're actually trying to help give everybody an overview of the Bible. So we've entitled it Journeying Through the Bible. And so we are literally trying to get through the what we call the meta-narrative. So the, the big picture uh, stories and the stories within the stories over a seven-week period. So if you were not here last week, then I'd encourage you to download the podcast because I just don't have time to recap. Uh, but we went through the first five books of the Old Testament which are really, really important uh, to kind of understand and a laser foundation for what we're talking about today. Um, we, I think, achieved a small miracle in getting through the first five books of the Bible in uh, a fairly short space of time last week. And today we're going to try and quickly get through 12 books. So, so I hope you've had your coffee. This is going to be one of those kind of like fire hydrant uh, moments where we're trying to download a, a really large amount of information, but I'm doing my very best to help us um, put it into perspective. So I'm not answering every question that will be uh, stirred up by the content, but but rather trying to help us understand the broader uh, perspective and context, so that when you're reading something in a particular passage, um, you'll understand uh, why it's there and and how that fits into the larger picture. So just very quickly to give you a couple of tools, because our goal is not for you to really come and be fed here once a week. The goal is for this to be part of your diet and, and, and one of the catalysts, but the real win is for us to be equipped to grow in our personal relationship with God and equipped to uh, actually read the Bible for ourselves and and to process it and to apply it. So just a couple of tips. I mentioned this last week that the Bible Project is an incredible resource. You can go to their website. Um, they, they don't have an app as such, but if you do use the Uversion app, then on the top left-hand corner of that uh, Bible app, there's actually a little... Um, an icon on the top left-hand corner that looks like a compass. And so if you click on that, then it'll show you if there's any video relevant to the book that you're busy reading. And all I can tell you is that, in my opinion, these guys have helped make the Bible way more understandable in terms of the, the big picture, um, what the overarching uh, purpose of the book is and, and, and what the kind of key characters and themes are. So Bible Project, guys, they have done Every book of the Bible, they've done key themes in the Bible, they've done key words in the Bible, so I would strongly recommend that you take a look at that. And then, um, as far as uh, sort of reading plans, because I do think that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, so we need to actually have a plan, we need to have um, a, a strategy, so something that we're aiming for in our daily time with God and in Scripture, then we certainly recommend version. it's a great easy, convenient um, Bible app on your mobile device. Um, most of the time, you can also listen to it. If, you, if for whatever reason, you're struggling to find time to read it, or maybe you take more in when you're listening, maybe you can be on the bus or the taxi or in your car, and you can actually listen to the plan that you're busy doing. So they've got loads of great options. What I would encourage you to do, though, is um, especially if you're used to doing a lot of topical plans, then I, I really want to encourage you to consider every now and then alternating that with a book of the Bible. So where we don't just look at one key, because without realizing, if you look back at, over history, you're probably looking to a lot of the same type of content. And every now and then it's really good to just come to a book of the Bible without any agenda and to actually allow God the opportunity to speak to us out of that book. So maybe you, for a season, go through the book of James or you go through the book of Hebrews or you go through the book of Genesis or, or maybe you want to go through the Bible in a year 
You may do that in a year, or you may go through the Bible in a year over three years, so, so you can kind of monitor your own pace. But this is one of the, the reading plans that a few of us have been doing this year. Um, it's actually called the Bible in one year, and there's an actual physical app that you can download onto your device, but you can also follow it on version. A little side note, if you're going to listen to the, the books of the Bible, then the New International Version, so the NIV UK, uh, the version. In terms of listening, I love the guy's voice. So there's no spiritual meaning to it. He's just easy. He, he articulates his words very well. He's a nice British guy. I don't, yeah. So I like reading the New Living Translation, but I really like listening to the NIV UK as an option. And I just feel like I actually can hear more and take more in. One more app is called Read Scripture. And this has been put together by the Bible Project guys and Francis Chan, for those of you that know him. And this also takes you through the Bible in a year. Again, you can always change your pace to doing one day over three days. The goal is not to get through content, everybody. The goal is to connect with God and to let the content get through, you know, get into you. So there are going to be times where you might need to camp somewhere. You might need to pause and, and actually not move on from that passage. So for example, the book of James, forgive me, I forget, is it five or six, four, four chapters, I think? Four chapters or five chapters? Is it six chapters? Okay, you can't, like, I wouldn't want to try and get through the book of James in four days or five days or six days. There's just too much in there that clubs you and challenges you and that you need to reflect on and, and process. So, so, so don't, don't be uh, whipped by the, the plan. Rather, let the plan actually work for you. A couple of other uh, uh, sort of tools um, is a great study Bible, and I always recommend the Life Application Study Bible. You get them for all kinds of versions, NIV. NKJV, etc. But I do personally recommend the NLT. That's the New Living Translation. I find that it's the easiest, simplest uh, version to read on a daily basis. And the notes that they give you at the bottom, uh, in my opinion, over the last 15 plus years, I, personally, I'm, I'm, I can't say this categorically. I'm just saying personally, I have found, I've got several Bible, uh, study Bibles, but I find their notes just, just the most easy to apply. So I do recommend that to you. You can buy those on Take A Lot or you can download a, a digital version if you prefer. All right, so last week, as I mentioned, we started with the first five books of the Bible. I'm not going to recap that today. We are picking up where we left off. So Deuteronomy left off with Moses having warned everybody, told, telling them that God wants to bless you, God wants to prosper you, God wants to, God wants to surprise you with his incredible provision and love and blessing. And then Joshua, which is the very next book, picks up. Moses has just died. Joshua has taken over as the leader of Israel. Some of you might remember that Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the 12 spies that were actually faithful. They believed God when he said that I have a promised land for you flowing with milk and honey. The other 10 were negative, And so literally they hijacked the destiny of millions of people as, as the, the negatives and the faithless led the rest of Israel to wander in the desert for 40 years. Joshua and Caleb had this faith. Um, I mean, they were, must have been at least 80 years old where Caleb was like, give me the hill country. And he was, he was wanting to pick a fight. Like he was wanting to, to get in there and take, you know, the hill territory. There was this unbelievable confidence in God. Joshua and Caleb almost had this unshakable sense of if God has said it, almost like that settles it. I know that's like a cliche, but I really think for them it was, well, if God has said it, what's there to argue about? God's going to provide. God's going to lead. God's going to undertake. And so we see this incredible story as Joshua leads this now new generation. So, so the old generation has passed away over the preceding 40 years, and now they're about to actually possess the promised land. And this is a really key theme if we're looking 
at the, uh, at the book of Joshua that it's all about possessing the land that God has promised the people of Israel. And it's this, it introduces this weird tension that many of us struggle with. Like, okay, hold on. God has promised it, but I still have to possess it? Like God has opened the door. So with the city of Jericho, the first uh, city that they were going to go and attack, like God, God brought the walls down miraculously. Okay, so God's brought, God brought the walls down, but you mean we still have to go in and win a victory? And it's this constant tension that we experience in our lives today as well, where God actually opens doors, or God gives you a job, or God blesses you with a spouse, or God gives you a child, or God gives you an opportunity, but then we still have this responsibility to do something with it. We still have this responsibility to build a great marriage, or to build healthy relationships with our kids, or to be good stewards of the, the work that God has given us, or the career that God has given us, or the education that he's allowed us. You know, so, so you may get this miraculous bursary, but you're not going to learn through osmosis. Like you have to be diligent and disciplined, right? That's bad news for any scholars. I mean, I'm sorry. I wish. I wish. I've often thought, God, if you could just put that chip into my brain, that I, just, that I, just, that I could just know stuff. But like he doesn't do it that way. So, so it's this incredible partnership that we have to manage with God. And we don't only, only see it in the book of Joshua. We see it throughout many, many of the books. But we have to manage this tension where we recognize what only God can do, and we have faith for that. But we also recognize what only we can do, and we are faithful with that. And I think sometimes we get upset with God when we blame Him for what we're responsible for. And I think we get into trouble when we try and take care. And we mentioned last week about Abraham making Ishmael, you know, where we, where we intervene because God's timeline isn't to our liking. And so we try and we, we get distracted from what we're actually responsible for and we meddle in the area that actually God is responsible for. Does it make sense? And so we have to be so careful that we, uh, yeah, that we trust God with that tension. Now, one of the awkward questions that the book of Joshua raises, if you're reading it objectively and kind of with a fresh set of eyes, is what about all the other people? Like, okay, it's very exciting, this whole thing of God's going to give us the promised land. But what about the people that are already in the promised land? Like, was God sanctioning genocide? And, and that's a valid question, by the way. One of the books that, that I'd recommend that you maybe take a look at, I can't endorse everything in it. I haven't read the whole book, but I have listened to this author speak on the subject. Is a book called Skeletons in God's Closet um, by a man by the name of Joshua Ryan Butler. Um, and so he actually kind of wrestles over this question of, of whether or not some of these instances was out, out of character with God. Like, if God's good, how could he? Anyway, one of the short versions is just to kind of, uh, from an overview point of view, explain to you that for roughly 400 years, God had been persevering with and warning and cautioning the Canaanites. They, they were a wicked, evil people. Not just, not just that they were worshiping demonic gods, but, but in some cases, in, uh, one encyclopedia uh, suggested they were the most sexually depraved culture in history, where in some cases they would sacrifice their children. So, so, so they would use their children and other adults in cases as um, human sacrifices. They would bathe themselves in, in, in the blood of these sacrifices. They were, they, were, they were depraved. They were wicked. They were evil. And so you have to understand that by the time God meters out judgment, 
You have to understand that that's God's last resort. It's never God's first response. It's God's absolutely last resort after he's given chance after chance, time after time, and, and God was eventually metering out judgment on a group of people that he had warned and chastised and tried to... In fact, some even suggest that possibly, even with the Israelites having to march around Jericho, um, if you know the story, they had to march around Jericho uh, once every day for six days, and then on the seventh day, they had to march around it seven times. Some have suggested that maybe there was even God giving them one last chance. Because just before that, we see that, that when Joshua sent a few spies out into the city, they come across Rahab, the prostitute, um, who eventually became you know, a part of the lineage of Jesus. She, she, she had faith. She was like, we know. We know that your God is the God. And they're like, okay, you'll be rescued. So, so God, God wasn't just uh, kind of whimsically wanting to just torture or wipe people out. You have, if, again, if you read some of these stories and how in some cases they would um, rip. I mean, this is in the Bible, guys. The Bible's not boring. I mean, actually, I don't want to tell you some of this stuff because it's gross to actually talk about. But you read it and it gets your attention and you understand, hold on, there was a level of wickedness. And so that, that first city that they go and conquer, I don't think it was a coincidence. Um, I think God was trying to give them a chance. I think also some have suggested that they weren't allowed to talk to each other because maybe some people lacked faith, and they're like, what's up with Joseph? I mean, Joshua, and why are we marching around this? And shouldn't we be going to gym rather or getting stronger or, or sharpening our tools, you know? Um, it, was a, it, was a weird, it was a weird idea. And by the way, just so you know, that was a once-off deal. That was an act of obedience that God gave to them once. I've seen Christians since then want to march around stuff. Like, no, God spoke once. Like, so, so if you're wanting a you know, promotion, don't go to your boss's desk tomorrow and march around it seven times and, and, and expect him to get, you know, dethroned and you promoted. It, it, it was an act of obedience. It was a unique instruction and a unique act of obedience. But then the walls come down and they actually had to go in and they had to work hard. And so over and over and over again, we see this partnership with God where God, where God gives them opportunity but then they actually have to go in and they have to fight for the promise. I want to encourage you not to just think, well, if it's God's will, the promise will just happen magically. It doesn't. God will perform miracles, but that doesn't mean that there won't be some level of responsibility. And, and the, again, there's so much detail that, that, that we're missing out on, but it gives us so many stories of their successes, but ultimately the book of Joshua ends with their failure where they failed to possess the land. They failed to fully get rid of the evil influence, and they landed up compromising with them. And in fact, in Joshua, sorry, in Judges, so if we move on to the next book, because this is where God brought in a, a season and a, and a series of judges. In chapter 2, we actually read about where a generation eventually arose that, that didn't know God and didn't know the good things that he had done. Like somehow that generation, and that's why, by the way, as parents, Please don't ever think that it's up to Kids Church or View City that, 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 that is someone else's responsibility to pass on to your kids. 99% of the responsibility is on parents, it's family, where we pass on the great things that God has done for us and where you pass on this legacy to your kids. But if we take a look in Judges chapter 1, by the way, this is on you version as well if you want to um, save those notes and you can take them home with you. Uh, it says in Judges chapter 1, verse 29, just to give you an idea of how they compromised. 
the tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Giza. So the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahalal. So the Canaanites continued to live among them. See if you're noticing a trend. The tribe of Asher failed to drive out the residents of Echo, Sidon, Achleb, Achib, Helber, Afik, and Rehob. Instead, that was impressive. Instead, the people of Asher moved in among, among the Canaanites. They compromised who controlled the land for their failed to drive them out. Likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. Instead, they moved in among the Canaanites. And their ultimate uh, key, what, 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 what led to their failure was that instead of becoming a holy people, which God had just spent 40 years trying to teach them, instead of becoming a holy people, they just became another Canaanite nation. They, they compromised. And instead of influencing the culture around them, they allowed the culture to influence them. And they got to a point where there was no difference between God's people, in inverted commas, and the people of the land. And so the, the book of Judges kind of gives us this, this picture of the spiral that just continued to take place, where the people would, would continue to sin. It's going to come up any second now. And they would... Uh, and they would reject God. They would bow down to false gods, which are basically demonic powers, etc. God would eventually allow a, another nation to come and oppress them. They would suffer. Eventually, and it took quite a while in most cases, they would come to repentance. God, because he's ridiculously gracious, would deliver them because God runs to the repentant, the truly repentant. God's not impressed with lip service, but he knows who's truly repentant. He would deliver them. Then they would experience a time of peace. And after they got a bit comfortable, they would sin again. And we actually see the cycle in the book of Judges seven times. Seven times they abandon God. Seven times they fall into the hands of other nations. And seven times God delivers them when they come to their senses. Please don't ever think that God lacked grace in the Old Testament. God was actually, in fact, I would argue that you actually see more of God's patience in the Old Testament. God was ridiculously patient. God God was incredibly kind and gracious as he would keep rescuing his people every time they would call out to him. But the, the last few chapters um, of the book of Judges, and by the way, the last, I think, two chapters have probably t- some of the worst, like one in particular, one of the worst stories in the Bible, in my opinion. Like it's just, it's just grotesque. And again, you see the level of, of wickedness. But in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it it references a phrase that is actually mentioned four times, and it says that in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. They had no king, so they had no leader. No one was influencing them. And by the way, it was never God's plan, actually, because if we go into the next few books, we see that it was never God's plan to actually give them a king, but they did need godly leaders. And not leaders that were about their ego or about power, but leaders that were righteous, that would want to help encourage and lead and equip and, and teach. And that's why God eventually, after the judges, brought the, the prophets into being. Samuel was the, was the last judge and the first prophet as he would speak on God's behalf because his people, and, and that, that scripture, I think, so accurately reflects the 21st century. Like, this isn't new, everybody. We still want to fight for what seems most comfortable for me, for what, for what's, for what you know, pleases my feelings most. And I've just got to tell you that there are going to be times in your life where your feelings are going to deceive you, 
where my feelings are going to deceive me. And I think, I think that, that your enemy loves to use your feelings against you. He loves to use our appetites against us. Yeah, but I feel like it. So surely, it's, so surely if that's what I want, then surely that's who I'm supposed to be. Well, I've got to tell you, if I gave into every appetite I want, every, every appetite that I feel, I, would be in, I wouldn't be in massive trouble. I would be destroyed. Because sometimes I have some wicked appetites. Sometimes I have unhealthy appetites. Sometimes I have screwed up thoughts. I, I, and, and what I'm doing in that process is, is I'm trying to mold God into my image instead of being molded into his image. I have to surrender my emotions, my appetites, my cravings, even what makes sense to me. I have to surrender that to God and to what has been revealed in his word. So just a, a quick uh, kind of almost summary of some of the judges that, and you'd be familiar with stories like Gideon and Samson and all these guys. Just so you know, God used very different people. They were, in fact, most of them were not great people. But you have some, some pretty good uh, judges like Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. I mean, Ehud there, by the way, that's a picture of, of the guy where he goes and, and kills someone that he was told to kill. And the guy's so fat that his arm actually disappears into the guy's stomach, just so you know, that's not boring. Um, then you have Gideon, who was kind of, you know, okay. Jephthah was a lunatic, all right? This, this uh, picture at the bottom over here, this is, again, from the Bible Project, guys, is a picture of where he, he thought that God was like the other evil Canaanite gods. And so he thought that if he made a deal with God, okay, I'll do what you're telling me to do, and I'll go and, and, and like, if you give me victory in this particular instance, well, then I will sacrifice, I'll offer you a human sacrifice, I'll sacrifice the first person that comes out of my house. And, and what's messed up in the story is that it seems that he is given the victory, so in his brain, he calculates one plus one, so he thinks, okay, well, that must mean I have to honor that stupid covenant, and his daughter is the first one to come. His only daughter, in fact, is the one to come out of the house. And so he honors his commitment to actually sacrifice his daughter, which, which is completely contrary to what the revealed word of God was. And by the way, that's why, that's, that's why we have to read the Bible in context. Because again, you might read the story in the book of Judges and think, well, was God okay with it? No, he wasn't. This, and that's why this is, and, and by the way, it doesn't say that he wasn't okay with it. Because this isn't a doctrinal book. This is what we call an historical narrative. If you come along to the course on the weekend, you'll understand how we read doctrine differently to wisdom literature, to historical narratives. It was simply giving an account. And, and another lesson to learn from Jephthah, by the way, is that, is that whatever we think is God's unique word to us always has to be surrendered to God's revealed word. Always. Because if Jephthah knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, he would know amongst those 613 laws, he would know that at no point did the God of heaven ever call anybody to sacrifice another human being. So just because it's recorded in Scripture doesn't mean that that's okay. And then, of course, probably one of the most famous is Samson, who was a bit of a sex maniac, and, and it was his downfall. And again, even though he achieves God's purposes, he was, like, I don't know, if you had a daughter, would you want your daughter marrying Joseph or Samson? Okay, if you have to think about that, you need to read the Bible, okay? Like, like you're in trouble if you ever want your daughter marrying someone like Samson. So, so again, God used him, but that didn't make him a good man. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because I don't want you or I 
to ever be deceived into thinking or into measuring our spiritual health by how God uses us. God, God spoke through a donkey, okay? God, God has used very broken, very sinful, very corrupt people. God, God has even used complete pagans for his purposes. I cannot measure my spiritual health based on the spiritual gifts. I have to measure it more on the spiritual fruit. So, so I want you to understand that just because you read stories in Scripture and think, well, God seemed to use them, so he, like, is that okay? No, it isn't okay. And so that's why we can never take pride in how God uses us. God might use you to be a blessing to someone. God might use you to share a word with someone. God might use you to rescue someone. That doesn't make you healthy. Us growing in our personal, intimate relationship with God and the outworking of that being the fruit of the Spirit, which is things like love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith, self-control. And I've got to tell you, I'm often challenged by that. More so than I think you'd want to hear from me. All right. So then we move to the book of Ruth. This is like a short little book that, that some of you will be familiar with. And by the way, even for men, it's a, it's a pretty interesting love story where it's just a great story of, of loyalty, of love, even though there's loss. And God's unbelievable faithfulness and, and redemption. And it's a picture. It's almost like a foreshadowing picture of the way that God was going to redeem his people in the New Testament. And, and something that's interesting and why I think it's probably in, in part in the historical account is that Ruth then actually became the great-grandmother of David. King David from David and Goliath fame or David and Bathsheba fame. So we move on to the next couple of books which is Samuel or 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And by the way, um, I'm not going to be sharing about Chronicles because, because quite a few of the stories in Samuel and Kings is repeated in Chronicles, but in some cases just with some more detail, which is definitely, definitely worth reading. But Samuel, and you'll see we're just using the one name over here, was originally one book. Uh, literally, the scrolls just weren't long enough. So, so back when they used to write the scrolls you know, and write the books, um, there, was a minim, there was like a maximum length to the scrolls, and so they... they there wasn't enough space, so they actually had to split it over two scrolls, and it became known as the first scroll of Samuel and the second scroll of Samuel, and it kind of stuck. So now we have first Samuel and second Samuel, but it's really one story, and it's worth reading as one story. It begins with Samuel, who was first a boy, and again, a great story over there. He becomes a prophet, so again, he was the final or last judge of the nation of Israel, and he's the first prophet of the nation of Israel, and, and he kind of leads, he influences, he leads, because again, leadership's influence, right? That's all it is. You don't have to have a title. If you influence, you're a leader. So, so he influences, he leads the nation of Israel, and he speaks to them on, on God's behalf, and this goes well for a time, but eventually they start craving for a king like all the other nations, like God has miraculously provided for them, delivered them, blessed them. But no, no, we want to be like everybody else. And so they want a human king. God warns them what's going to happen if they have a human king. He's like, they're going to, they're going to drill you. They're going to work you hard. You're going to have to pay taxes. That you're going to be conscripted into the army, etc. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We want a king. So again, God eventually honors their choice. We heard about this last week. Where over and over again in our lives, God will eventually honor our choice, which why, side note, I'm so grateful for the many times that God hasn't answered my prayers. Right? There's some times where, where if you just give God enough time, you're like, uh, okay, you knew better. <laughs> like, thank you, Jesus, that you didn't actually answer that particular, that particular prayer. 
Um, and, so, and so in the end, he lands up anointing Saul as king. Saul almost looks humble at first, but actually it wasn't humility. It was insecurity, which is different. To be insecure doesn't mean you're humble. It just means you think less of, your, you think of, you think less of yourself than what you should. But to be humble is to just think appropriately of God and, and to know our place in that equation, right? So, so he wasn't actually humble. He was insecure. And so when he failed, he, he still craved the attention of people. And so when he messed up, he wanted Samuel to still honor him in front of the people. And we see this incredible difference between Saul and David, where David was the complete opposite when he recognized his sin. And he didn't recognize it quickly, always. But when he recognized his sin, he was quick to repent. And so if you're actually going to look at the stories compared to one another, I would argue that in some cases, that in some cases, David's sin was actually worse than Saul's. If you read the story of Bathsheba, how he had an affair with her, how he arranged for the murder of her husband and the people around him, like it's, it, it is a sickening story. It is disturbing. But when the prophet Nathan came to him and made him aware, and when he kind of like came to his senses, he was, he was humble. You read Psalm 51. He is, he is humble. He is broken. He, he, he knows that he can't do anything to make himself right. He, know, he knows that he has sinned against God. And there is this incredible humility. And, and we see that theme throughout the Old Testament. We see that theme throughout the New Testament where God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And so we see, we see with, with Saul and David this incredible contrast where ultimately Saul was unrepentant and David was repentant. And it encourages us that, that there's no such thing as people with sin and people without sin. There's only those who acknowledge their sin and those who deny their sin. And if it looks like I'm pointing at you, you just happen to be sitting here, this group. And you, I'm not saying you guys are good, you guys are bad. I'm saying, I'm saying we, we, we are either going to acknowledge our sin, in which case God is quick to forgive and slow to anger. He is, he is kind to the humble. God finds humility attractive. God is attracted to the humble. God is attracted to the obedient. Conversely, God is repelled by pride. God is, God is repulsed by pride. And so, and so we see that here are these men that have sinned, and in some cases greatly, but because of David's humility and his willingness to own it and to deal with the consequences, the Bible still calls him a man after God's own heart. And David's life is basically the middle of the history, almost. And, and so, 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 uh, in, in terms of Abraham and Jesus, David, David's basically in the middle, almost like at the halfway point before the promised Messiah. And so we move on to the account of kings. And as I mentioned, we're not going to go into Chronicles. But, but we see that after David, we then have his son come onto the scene. And some of you would be familiar with uh, the name Solomon. And he was, uh, at first, he started off really well. He was humble. Uh, God asked him if he can do anything for him. Kind of like the genie in the bottle thing. Like, you know, you have a wish. I'll grant you whatever. And instead of asking for wealth and, and all these other things and power and victory over his enemies, he asks for wisdom. And God loves this request because it was wisdom to lead the people, to serve the people, to influence the people. So he starts off amazingly, and then Solomon tanks. And the Bible actually gives us 
a large part of the reasoning where again, just like we saw with the nation of Israel throughout Joshua, he started to compromise. And so where he seemed to first have his act together, he then starts to do things that again in the revealed word of God were prohibited. So he starts to partner with the Egyptians, where God said, don't ever go back to Egypt. Don't ever go and get horses from there. Don't ever, don't ever accumulate wealth like Well, he accumulated wealth like nobody's business. He was like, be married to one woman. He's like, like, he's like, there's a lot of attractive women. So he lands up having 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women that this man's having to maintain. Think about, I mean, besides all the other stuff, think about what that cost. Who do you think paid for that? His people? Who, like, like he would have had to tax, he would have had to tax his people to be able to look after, you know, a thousand extra households. God warned them against this stuff. And, and part of, the, part of the, the prohibition against intermarrying with, with anybody from another nation like that was that they would lead him to idol worship, and that's what they did. So Solomon, the wisest man in the world, lands up worship, is setting up idols and things and, and, and allowing for, and even participating in false worship. So even though, even though he kind of builds the kingdom, you know, the temple for God, which is amazing, by the, at the beginning of the book of Kings, at the end of Kings, the temple is destroyed. Even though, even though the very beginning of the book of Kings starts with King David, it ends with the king of Babylon leading the nation into captivity. And so Solomon ultimately tanks. Um, he then hands over to his son, Rehoboam, who was a complete, can I say loser? Is that offensive in church? He was a bit of a loser. He was, he was, he was, an, he was a foolish, uh, unwise young man who takes over from his father and, and he was so foolish that it led to civil war amongst the tribes of Israel. So you've got the people sending a, a kind of an entourage to appeal to this new king, Rehoboam, saying, your dad was really harsh on us because remember we had to look after a thousand households plus all of his wealth plus all of this other stuff. So he, so he, dr- he drilled us into the ground. Like, like he worked us hard and he taxed us heavily. So Rehoboam says, okay, let me go away and think about this. Come back in a couple of days. So Rehoboam first talks to his father's past advisors and counselors, and they're like, Rehoboam, if you want them to love you and trust you and serve you, ease up on everything. He's like, okay, cool. He then goes to his friends, uh, like a younger group of new advisors, and asks them, so what do you guys say? And they're like, I mean, they're like typical young guys. They're like, they think your dad was harsh? You show them who's boss. And he's like, make it, you know, Increase the taxes, drive them harder. And so that's what he does. And they're like, later loser. And it causes a civil war. And the 10 tribes of Israel become the northern kingdom. And only two tribes are remaining that become the southern kingdom. So the 10 tribes, if you take a look at the map on the screen over here, the the 10 tribes that became the uh, northern kingdom went north. And they had Samaria as their capital. And then the two tribes, which were Benjamin and Judah, became known as Judah, and they had Jerusalem as their capital. And so if you're reading through the book of Kings or Chronicles or even Ezra and Nehemiah, and you hear references to Israel, they're referring to the northern tribes. If you hear reference to Judah, they're referring to the southern tribes. And so we see this terrible split take place, and they were never to be united Again, and during this time, right, each of these 
kingdoms. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom land up having 20 kings each. And they've been given these very, very clear instructions that are going to be up on the screen any second now, where all they had to do was worship the God of Israel alone, rid Israel of idolatry, and be faithful to the covenant. And according to those three things, the northern kingdom didn't have a single positive ruler. Like, if you read through the, like, you are horrified. Again, I mean, some of these kings would sacrifice their kids to false gods. Like, they were evil, wicked. And then of the 20 rulers in the southern kingdom, only eight of them seem to actually kind of fear God and, and want to honor God and want to obey God. And if you read through the, the, the story of kings, it's almost like whiplash as you just see like one, one crazy king doing stupid things. They suffer and then goes down. And then like the next king, you're like, don't, you think, don't, didn't they learn from that? Why would they keep doing the same thing? And then, and then when you're reading some of the kings of Judah, some of them seem to be okay. And then they're blessed. You're like, okay, surely they're going to learn from this and follow God and obey God. And then the next, you know, that Righteous king has an unrighteous son, and he becomes king, and he takes them back to the dogs again. And it's just this, this crazy, crazy story as you see all of this stuff taking place. And so what happens in the end is that the northern tribes, so Israel, actually land up being led off into captivity. And again, God has warned them for like 400 years. It's like, guys, you're going to go into captivity. Guys, don't do that. Guys, I'm going to take my hand off you. Guys, you're going to suffer the consequences. And they just keep on keeping on until eventually they are conquered and they're led away into captivity by the Assyrians. And Judah weren't that much better because a hundred years later, the southern tribes were taken into captivity by Babylon. And it was only when the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians that they then allowed for the first little remnant of, of Judah to actually return to Jerusalem. And that's where we move on to the book, the final books of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The only reason why I'm putting Esther first is because Esther actually lived chronologically. She lived before Ezra and Nehemiah. So Esther's this beautiful Jewish girl who gets married to a lunatic king, uh, Xerxes, like under far from ideal circumstances. But you see the sovereignty of God in the story. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned, but it is dripping with God's sovereignty and God's activity. And it gets to a point where Hey, Haman is this wicked ruler, and he has this altercation with um, Esther's uncle just by chance. Like, he doesn't know that they're connected. And uh, Mordecai, who's, a, who's an uncle, doesn't show enough respect to him. So he's like, I'm not going to just take revenge on you. I'm going to take revenge on your whole people. And so we see this, this incredible, archaic form of racism, nationalism, prejudice. And he actually gets this lunatic king to sign an edict into being that on a certain given day, the whole nation of Babylon, they're all, they're all able to, sorry, Persia, they're all able to, to wipe out every Jew. And it's this crazy, tense story. It's only a few chapters, but there's so, much, there's so much activity in there. And then Mordecai comes to Esther and says, Esther, what if this was the reason that you were made queen? And if you don't, like who knows what's going to happen to your people? And we see this courage of this young girl because she wasn't allowed to go before the king unless he called her. So she's like, okay, if I die, I die. Go off and pray and fast or go, go off and fast for three days and three nights. I will go off and fast. And then I'll approach the king. And it turns around amazingly. Like it's almost comical how, how the very thing that, that, that Haman plans for Mordecai lands up happening to him. It's a great twist of uh, story. I'd recommend it highly. And the final two books are Ezra and Nehemiah. So 
As we've mentioned with, with kings, we've, we've had these 20 rulers in both the northern tribes, the southern tribes. Northern tribes are taken into captivity to Assyria. The southern tribes are eventually taken 100 years later into captivity in uh, Babylon. And now we read of the account. So even Esther took place during the exile of the tribe of Judah, the southern, uh, the southern kingdom. And so, and so in this book, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was, again, originally it was one book, we actually read of three different times that the king of Persia allowed them to return. The first time was by, under a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, where he led a remnant back to Jerusalem, and they began to rebuild the temple, but then they kind of stopped halfway. And then, and then Ezra uh, eventually gets given permission by Esther's stepson, Artaxerxes, a couple of exes. And... Uh, and so he goes and he, and he kind of motivates people and, and speaks on God's behalf. And, he, and he, again, he challenges them to repent from their compromise and, and their double standard. And then Nehemiah is allowed to lead a third return where, uh, where he then rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem so that they can actually become a secure city again. I want to read one passage to you before, before we wrap things up. Um, again, I don't have time to read through that Ezra passage that you might find in U version, where it just basically shows the sovereignty of God, how God stirred the king's heart to send them back. And then God stirred the people's hearts to actually return to Jerusalem. But just quickly, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. Uh, 11 is a very well-known verse, if you've been around church for a while. But I want to just give you the context really quickly, because many of us like that promise of, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We might buy it on a mug at Kumbuks or something. But I want to just, just, just kind of give you the context. So, so bear in mind that Jeremiah is speaking um, to the nation of Judah while they are in captivity, while they are in exile. He says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. He has the well-known verse, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. But then let's carry on. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you. (coughs) Says the Lord, excuse me. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. I want to. I want to get this. I want to leave us with this picture. I want to leave us with this picture that even that even when people have rejected God, even when people have walked away from God, even when people are finding themselves in captivity and they're suffering the consequences of their own choices, that they have continued to you know to compromise again and again and again and again. There is this recurring theme in Scripture. And we read it last week in Deuteronomy as well, where where God says, "If you will turn." Like even if you've done the worst of the worst. And I mean, there even some of us here this morning that, that wouldn't want people to know some of the stuff we've done. I want to tell you that if you read Scripture, you will be encouraged that if God can forgive some of these wicked kings who, who, were, who were offering their kids as human sacrifices, who were ripping open pregnant women when they were trying to conquer another, another city or another village, that were, that were involved in, in just the most de- de- depraved sexual stuff involving, involving incest and bestiality and all these things. And then you read that when they humbled themselves, that when they softened their hearts, that God was quick to forgive. Guys, it, 
It encourages us. And that's where that promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 is encouraging. So it's not, it's not a bad promise, but it's so important that we put it into context where there, there are conditions attached. If we will seek God, we will find Him. If we will humble ourselves, if we will surrender to Him. And so I'd love for you to stand as I just read the final scripture to you. And this is not in the Old Testament. And it's not on your notes. It's not on the screen. But, but I just think it so accurately summarizes what we're seeing taking place in the Old Testament. And you would, you would probably be familiar with the phrase, many of you, but it's found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 onwards, where it says very simply, this is the well-known portion, that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He doesn't give grace to the groveling. He doesn't give grace to the almost perfect. And you just need that little... That, that, that extra little push over the line. No, no. He gives grace to the least and the last, to the broken and the battered, but that are humble. Humble. You can be beaten and battered and not be humble. God's going to oppose you. You can be what looks like successful and, and influential and powerful, but if you're humble, if you recognize your place before God and everything else is surrendered to God, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he goes on, Peter, to say, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, again, we always want to read these things in context. At the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God. Maybe you're, maybe you're standing out this morning and there's stuff that you're carrying. Him inviting us to be humble involves us handing some stuff over to him. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against Him and be strong in your faith. Again, there's that tension of God doing what He can do and us being called to do what we can do, where we stand our ground, where we don't give up, where when we fall, we get back up again. Just because you have fallen doesn't mean you have failed. To ultimately fail is to stay down when we have fallen as opposed to getting back up again. God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. 